Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. What do you know about the Joe Lewis Greenway? Today, we're going to talk with the author of a story about how this effort to connect Detroit's green spaces is going to affect the neighborhoods around it, both for the better and maybe for the worse. Then we're going to talk with the head of the state's transportation department about how Michigan is trying to address inequalities through its approach to infrastructure. It's all next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. Welcome to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We talk all the time about the ways that Detroit neighborhoods often seem to get overlooked. You hear lots about what's happening in Midtown or Downtown or some neighborhoods like Corktown, but the majority of Detroit residents don't live in those places. They live in other spaces that often suffer quite a bit of neglect and where decisions about their futures are often made in a way that seems dismissive of residents' input. But there's one project taking shape in Detroit that is coming to neighborhoods all over the city, the Joe Lewis Greenway, which is beautifying, quote, 27 and a half miles of the most blighted and neglected land in the city. That's according to Mayor Mike Duggan. And that infrastructure project could have other positive outcomes for residents all over the city, which seems really important these days as the effects of climate change create more devastation and frustration for Detroit residents. But there's also real questions about the Greenway. Who will it benefit? Will there be neighborhoods that don't like the things that it brings to them? That's where we want to begin the conversation today. We've got a great guest with us to help think through what the Joe Lewis Greenway means to Detroiters. Rakia Colvin is an urban planning graduate student at Wayne State University and an environmental journalism fellow at Planet Detroit. She's the author of the piece that was titled the Joe Lewis Greenway could transform Detroit. What about the neighborhoods around it? And that was published in Detour Detroit last month. Rakia Colvin, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. Mm -hmm. So let's start here. What is the Joe Lewis Greenway? I feel like that word or that phrase is becoming more common to hear around here in Detroit, but I'm not sure that most people really know what it is and how it will change the city. So let's start there. Yeah, so it's going to be an extension of what has already been built for the Greenway. So you think about the Dequinder Cut area, um, the walk along the Riverwalk. The idea is for that project to extend throughout neighborhoods, um, connecting from downtown 
throughout the, the west side of the neighborhood, um, through the, the mid area um, to the east and back to downtown. So it should be a continuous loop by the time it's finished. And um, the idea, or at least what I read from it, is that it's going to be this green space that's going to have uh, recreational amenities um, for those in the area or for visitors, um, a bike pathway as well. And um, yeah, that's the gist of it. And there's uh, a proposed security aspect of it. Like mm-hmm. they're going to be including cameras and things everywhere. Um, so that's another. So one way I think case. I think one way to think of this is that it is an effort to kind of connect many of the green spaces that already exist in the city, so that you can get from one to the next without, I guess, you know, wa- driving a car or walking. Uh, on on through through um, through residential or commercial areas, it's it's kind of a an extensive network, I guess, or connecting the extensive network of parks and green spaces in the city. Would that is that an accurate description? Yeah, that's the idea of it. And um, when you think of it that way, I'm I'm really curious to see how it turns out because I do think that it is important to have connecting greenway spaces in urban areas like Detroit, um, but also we have all these other existing green spaces. So I'm really curious to see how this major project kind of extends out to these other open space areas that already exist in the city that are um, under kept. Um, And so where would Detroiters right now see this taking shape? You, you try to emphasize that neighborhoods that often don't get attention um, are are becoming part of this greenway and that they're going to be affected by it. But but if you're an if you're just somebody who lives here, where would you go to see what's actually taking shape? Well, right now the city they they have on their website where you can um, look into the updates. And I don't have that link handy right now. But I'm sure if you go to DetroitMichigan.gov and search for Joe Louis Greenway, you can find updates. But I mean, this is something you just kind of have to know um, or it has to be told to you. I feel like many Detroiters um, may not know about this project Mm -hmm. or don't care because it doesn't, they feel like it may not affect them in a beneficial way because there's so many other things that's been overlooked in their neighborhoods that need um, investment into. or people just don't have the internet to look into these things. So where do they get those updates? Yeah. Um, but yeah. it is available on their site. Yeah. So uh, in in your reporting, you focus on a certain part of Detroit, and you talk about the needs of that area of the city with respect to the things that are going to happen uh, in the Greenway. Uh, tell us about that part of Detroit. It's kind of a Midwest part of the city. Yeah, so uh, today the neighborhood is called the Midwest um, neighborhood, but historically it's known as the Old West Side. Mm-hmm. And it holds um, some historical value when you think about the Macarena Club and the Bluebird Inn that's over there. Um, just like Paradise Valley and Black Bottom, this area of the um, city, um, it was a very prominent neighborhood um, for Black folks who um came here from the South to work in auto factories and many of them lived in this area. So what you have today is a lot of legacy Detroiters who have been in their home for 
years, whether it was passed down to them from their grandparents or their parents. Um, and they live in this area, but you also have this um, neighborhood surrounded by a lot of divested and neglected blocks of just um, vacant land or abandoned houses and just lack of daily resources like grocery stores, parks, schools, things of that nature. Um, and through one of the classes that I took uh, through my urban planning program, I found out that this is um, the only neighborhood in the city without a neighborhood plan. Um, you know, we have the strategic neighborhood fund mm -hmm. um, neighborhoods that are, you know, proposed to be invested in or has already been invested into. But this area of the city is the only one without a neighborhood plan. It still is. But um, from what I learned through writing the story is that a neighborhood plan for this area is now in the works. Mm -hmm. So. And and what's the effect of the Joe Lewis Greenway on this part of the city? Well, at least what I learned from the residents in the area is that the effect is that it will bring more opportunity into the neighborhood. They have folks over in the area who are um, who have been working with city officials to help, I guess, mediate some of the issues they've dealt with with business owners in the area who um, partake in a lot of illegal dumping or just activity as it relates to, like, there's a lot of auto industry businesses. So you'll, you'll find, like, a lot of uh, scrap cars or just neglect from the business owners in the area and residents have been working with city officials to address that. And it seems like the Greenway is helping to alleviate some of those issues. Um, there's also folks in the area who grew up there who are looking to open up their own business. It's going to be like a community hub, hmm. um, a space for folks to gather, you know, urban gardens, things of that nature, um, to really bring some of that community togetherness that used to exist in the neighborhood mm -hmm. back to the space. And the Greenway also helps to, um, I guess, uplift that. Um, so yeah, in a sense, it's bringing opportunities to the residents. Um, but at the same time, it's like, why did it take this project for that to happen? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm talking with uh, Rakia Colvin. Uh, she's an urban planning graduate student at Wayne State and an environmental journalism fellow at Planet Detroit. She has written a piece for Detour Detroit last month titled uh, The Joe Lewis Greenway Could Transform Detroit. What about the neighborhoods around it? We're talking about the ways in which uh, this Greenway project, which really is about connecting the green spaces here in Detroit and making more of a network out of them. Uh, we're talking about what kind of effect that's going to have on the neighborhoods that surround the Greenway. Uh, what will... What will that look like for residents in these neighborhoods? What will it look like for residents in neighborhoods where not many good things happen? Uh, and let's be honest, there's a lot of the city where people are just still kind of hanging on and waiting for the tide to turn the way it has in places like downtown or midtown or neighborhoods like Corktown. Uh, what effect will the Greenway have on their optimism, uh, on the day-to-day -day experience they have as Detroiters, uh, on the future? Uh, we want to hear from you as well. Uh, what do you know about the Joe Louis Greenway, and what are your thoughts about it? What kind of impact do you think it's going to have 
on the city's neighborhoods. Do you want to see more public infrastructure investments like this? And what are the things you think will improve neighborhoods and mitigate problems uh, associated with things like climate change? Uh, part of the idea of this Greenway, of course, uh, is to make better use of some of the infrastructure, make better use of the land here in Detroit. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put comments there, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. Uh, Rakia, before we get to listeners, I want to talk about the bad reputation that public infrastructure projects have here in Detroit. There are a lot of things that have been done to us as Detroiters uh, is probably the best way to, to, to put that. Um, when we think about the creation of the highways, for instance, in the city, um, that's infrastructure that destroyed neighborhoods. So I, I wonder what you make of how residents are viewing this idea of the, the, the Greenway. Are they initially skeptical of the idea that something like this could be good for them? Uh, and Or are they sort of answering the call as, um, as uh, people in the Old West Side, as you were talking about, uh, seem to be doing and kind of organizing around this project and figuring out how to, how to build community out of it? Absolutely. So I think it's a combination of both things. Um, so people are most definitely skeptical. One, because, uh, well, the process here is, is not as democratic as we would like it to be. Like when folks show up at the meetings to participate in feedback regarding major projects in the city, you have to question whether that feedback is truly being valued and applied to the project at hand. Um, and also, you have some neighborhoods that just don't have as strong of a presence to really make their voices heard at these meetings, mm -hmm. um, or maybe they just don't have the information um, to do that. But luckily for the old West Side neighborhood, like I said, they have a lot of legacy residents there who, who care about um, the integrity of the neighborhood that still exists despite all of the divestment that has happened. So they, they had that leverage um, to make their voice heard. And yes, with the Joe Lewis Greenway project, they have their um, advisory council, um, which is how Lucian Long was involved in this project. One of the folks that I spoke to for his story was a legacy resident. But not er not every area in the city has that. So when you think about um, one project over another, um, they they don't weigh the same. So you have to you have to think about that in terms of how the city is handling this sort of. Um, process when it comes to truly making things democratic. Yeah. Uh, as always, again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Let's start with Springer in Detroit. Springer, what's on your mind? Uh, hi, hi, I'm Cody. I think the Jolis Greenway is an incredible opportunity for not just recreation and health, but also bicycle transportation to get from point A to point B on a bicycle. Um, saves money, keeps you healthy, and it gets you where you need to go door to door without waiting. Yeah, um, <laughs> that's true. Yeah, and I think also programming to make more bicycles available to people who need them yeah. is uh, a potential important element related to it. Yeah, uh, Springer, I absolutely agree. And you know, as somebody who enjoys biking and enjoys getting getting 
around on a bike when I can. Um, I can really relate to what you're talking about. Rakia, you know, the relationship between the, the things that are changing in Detroit and bike culture is a little more complicated than it, it might be in other <laughs> cities uh, because, again, of history here and, and things like that. There are a lot of people who believe that all this attention – to biking and bike lanes and uh, connecting things so that we can bike is is aimed at non-Detroiters. That that it's for people mm-hmm. who don't who don't live here. Um, of course, if you live in the city and and in neighborhoods, uh, I mean, I, I also think you know that. Um, there are lots of Detroiters who who are really into bikes. I mean, the, the neighborhood where I am from, uh, over near Livernois and Grand River, is home to one of the largest uh, bike clubs in in the city. Not just uh, they're not just out riding together; they're building bikes for kids in the neighborhood. And I mean, it's a really it's a really active part of. Uh, of the neighborhood, but but talk about how the Greenway is approaching biking and and approaching this this kind of sensitive subject of whom the bikes are for and the bike lanes are for and and making making it clear uh, or trying to make it clear that uh, this is this is for Detroiters too. Yeah, this is it's a tough one and one for me I am I am all for biking and just uh more transit in general, more public transit. I think it's really important when you think about um the overall infrastructure and working toward um climate justice and addressing climate change and all of these really important things but when it comes to Detroiters, uh I don't know, I guess the skepticism I don't really know how it stems and I I can see that there are good intentions with the Greenway in promoting more bike usage, but yes, I feel like right now it's it's targeted toward um, suburbanizers, just people in general who are not from the area. One because, well, you have to think about okay, let's say we have this Greenway and you want to encourage more Detroiters to use, you know, this this bike space. Well, you have to think about how they will be using this and where they will be biking too, like most of Detroiters outside of like fast food restaurants and um, the quality of jobs here that just doesn't pay enough for Detroiters. And they have to, most folks here have to go to other cities for employment. Right. So how does this, this bike space really encourage, um, encourage things from an economic standpoint. Yeah. And I think that's a, a huge part of it for Detroiters. And then you have to think about the connection to other transit systems, because yes, we have this, or we're working towards this, um, this, I can't remember, I think it's like 7.5 miles with the, the greenway it's going to be, but you're going to have this, this major bike space for all of the city to use, but you have to think about its connectivity to other things, uh, like jobs and also transit. Um, and I know we have issues with our public transit right now in terms of like them cutting um, their staff and just the overall quality of our our both regional and local bus systems. So just those two things alone, I feel like are discouraging folks in the city from being uh, super excited about this bike space. And yes, it's great for some areas, but not in all. And then you also have to think about the other resources that are available, um, like 
food, for example, grocery store. So yeah. when you don't have those things in place, it's kind of hard to be that excited about biking because, like, where am I biking to? Right, right. Uh, again, Springer, appreciate the call and the comments. Let's go next to Kelly on the east side. Kelly. Uh, hi there, Stephen. Uh, thanks for taking the call. Mm-hmm. I, this morning, had to once again call Eagle to repair, to report the air quality here on the east side due to the FCA plant. So if the FCA plant is continuing to spill out volatile organic compounds into the air that make it difficult to breathe or make the air quality bad, and I don't even want to work in my garden a lot of times, why am I going to want to ride a bike <laughs> all over the area <laughs> if I'm inhaling VOCs that our own you know, mayor said it was okay that they spew out in our city instead of Warren. Mm. Uh, Kelly, that's a great question. And I know a lot of folks who live over near that plant and the expansion of that plant who are not terribly happy with, uh, with what's going on over there. Of course, the, the, the argument when the city agreed to do that is that it would create jobs and, and economic activity in the city. And, uh, that that outweighed the that outweighed the concerns that uh, that some people in the community had. Uh, Rakia, I, I wonder what you make of this kind of tension around again infrastructure. As Kelly's pointing out, the, the city's development plans in this case kind of conflict with the idea of being outside and enjoying uh, the, the the outdoors and and green spaces. Uh, I imagine that that that's something that's maybe coming up in in different areas of the city as well. Oh, for sure. And I'm so happy that Kelly raised the issue of what's going around the Stellantis plant with the air quality and residents not being happy. Actually reported a little bit about that in another story. But yeah, that's another example of like, okay, we have these bike lanes, we have this space for biking, but what is the point of me using this space if, we still have these air quality issues going on. And um, and this is making me think about the comment I made earlier about the need for jobs in the city. But you have also have to think about what type of jobs are being offered that, you know, correlates with them encouraging more bike usage and um, public transit usage. Um, but I think we need to work towards, and, I, you know, I don't have like a, a more definite example of this, but we need to work to work toward more sustainable jobs as well. And yes, you have this plant creating more of these jobs, but it's just really sustainable for people if you still have these air quality issues going on and health issues happening. So it's a contradiction there. And it's a little unfair, especially from what I'm seeing and hearing from residents to throw in people's faces like, oh, we're offering jobs, so that should be good enough. But it's like, well, you're also killing us. No. So. Yeah. Okay, Rukia Colvin, it was really great to have you here to talk about the Joe Lewis Greenway and the neighborhoods that will be affected by it. Thanks so much for joining us on Detroit Today. Thanks for having me. Okay, we're going to take a break and when we come back, we're going to talk about how Michigan infrastructure projects can mitigate things like inequality. Paul Adjiba, who's director of the Michigan Department of Transportation, will join us, as will John Kramer, president of OHM Advisors. We also want to continue to hear from you on the phones. What role do you think infrastructure and green spaces play in the narrative about inequality? What role do they play in the way that we live and play 
and neighborhoods here in Detroit and all around the metro area. As always, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter, put comments there, and we'll work you into the conversation that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Bringing you news that matters. Stories that impact your life. Music from the Motor City and around the world. This is 1019 WDET. Detroit's NPR station. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. You know, the history of infrastructure projects in the first half of the 20th century, it's often quite dark. Some of those projects, particularly the highways that crisscrossed the country, they pummeled through black and brown communities without listening at all to input from the people who lived in those neighborhoods. And that history is not just about what was done, but often what wasn't done as well. Poor communities must constantly put up with things like dirty air, unclean water, inferior public parks, rec facilities, and libraries. But these days, more public authorities are becoming aware of this sordid history and are at least listening to those who have been and are currently harmed by such things. Some public officials are trying to even reverse inequalities through the projects that once similarly created them. That's where we want to continue the conversation here on Detroit Today. What is the right way to think about infrastructure? What is the way to think about infrastructure that brings about equality, fairness, racial justice? Increasingly, public officials are actually weighing their decisions in that context and making decisions that will push us toward equality instead of pulling us away from it. Paul Ajiba is the director of the Michigan Department of Transportation, and he's somebody who, from the jump, has been talking about the power of infrastructure and decisions about infrastructure to bring about equality. Paul Welcome to Detroit Today. Hi. Good morning, Stephen H. How are you today? Yeah, it's great. Uh, it's great to hear your voice. So I want to start with the past before we get to what you're doing now in the present. Um, how, much, how much are you talking and discussing and interacting with communities, particularly poor, browner communities, that have been hurt by government infrastructure projects in the past? Um, I, I think you said it well in your introductory uh, remarks, uh, Stephen. Uh, in the past, uh, we've always felt we are the government with the highway admin, uh, with the high, highway department. Uh, we just go in the community. I want to. We think this putting a roadway here is the best way for the people of the state. Uh, we just go ahead and. and 
purchase property and put a freeway there. I-375, again, I think you, you've heard a lot of the discussion going on about that. It's a good example of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the Black Bottom neighborhood at, at the time was a, a very thriving community. Uh, you had a lot of businesses there owned by black folks where we came in uh, 1959, roughly to 1965. We built I-375 that goes into the city of Detroit and uh, we displaced a lot of businesses and homes. I think the, the you know paying them the true value of that business or home is one thing, but what we never thought about is the residual effect of those businesses not being able to transfer that generational wealth to the next generation, to their kids, where they can take up that business and grow it and make it bigger uh, and obviously employ people in our community. So the new way of thinking is this is not the right way to do things. We have to engage the community that we are trying to uh, uh, displace. For instance, the Gordy Howe Bridge Project that's going on right now, that project we not only purchased properties, in some cases we relocated our residents to a much better neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, you know, paying somebody money for the, the cost of that property may not be enough for them to be able to purchase, uh, you know, almost similar property somewhere else because you base it on, on, on the uh, appraised value of that property in that area. Yeah. But that may not be enough money for them to purchase property somewhere else. So we even relocated properties uh, to uh, to other locations, again, to continue that, that, that social justice piece, understanding that you know, if you buy that, that business out and they cannot transfer that wealth, you, you just totally cut off a generational wealth. So we are more socially conscious of that now. Uh, the Woodward Loop project is another good example in Pontiac where it's a one-way loop that, you know, in those days, General Motors was there. People just, you know, it, it's a way to get in and out. Uh, we finally realized that maybe this is not the best way because it doesn't connect your neighborhood to the downtown Pontiac. We decided we're going to make that a two-way uh, roadway, and we invest in money in, in, in trying to do that. It's in the design process now. Hopefully uh, that project will get on the way very soon. Mm. So, so, Paul, I want to have you talk just a little about how hard it is, maybe, to reestablish trust in communities where decisions before were made without community input and against community interest. I mean, we have such a rich history and kind of awful history of that here in, in Michigan. And wonder if one of the things you have to overcome is just skepticism uh, from people when you say, hey, we want to do this in a way that is good for you and good for your community. Oh, you, you hear that every time we go to a community to have public meetings. You hear people say, well, we don't trust you because you did this, you did that way back then. Mm-hmm. And I, I think what the way you gain the trust of the community is engaging some of the community leaders in the decision-making process. This is not us coming in dictating what we are going to do. This is going to be an inclusive process. We want your opinion. And as you, uh, every step of the way while you're doing the, the planning and the design of that project, you're including them, you're going back 
and sharing your thoughts with them, the, the progress schedule, I think it helps to slowly build trust. I, I will tell you, even the I-375 right now, I, I think we're still in that building trust process, even though the, the project is, we've got a good uh, understanding of what we would like to put back in there. Um, the, the, the tr- building that trust process is not going to complete till we finish the project and they actually see that a lot of the things that they recommended is incorporated in the final product that they see out there. It's, it, it's, a, it's a building block. Mm-hmm. You have to work hard at it to make sure that everybody feels included in, in, in the decision-making process. Yeah. I want to welcome another voice to this conversation as well, somebody who's also deeply involved in this effort to try to bring the lens of equality to development and infrastructure. Uh, John Kramer is president of OHM Advisors. John, welcome to Detroit Today. Oh, I'm sorry, we don't have John quite yet. Uh, We're still working on that. (laughs) We will have John uh, in just a little bit. Uh, Paul, I, I want to come back to you sure. while we're waiting for, for John. Um, talk a little about how MDOT is taking its money and federal dollars to build highways with small and diverse firms around the state. How closely are you tracking which businesses get those dollars? This is another question about equity that comes up with infrastructure. Oh, yes. Um, first, I, I have to give my, my boss, uh, Governor Whitman, a lot of credit. Now, mm-hmm. when she came in, that, that was part of her uh, focus area to say, okay, how do we make sure that when we put uh, you know, businesses, I mean, when we award contracts, we're making sure that equity is a big part of that. Uh, we have what you call a, a, a DBE, that's Disadvantaged Business Enterprise. We have an office here that actually deals with that, going out in the community, recruiting uh, minority businesses to be part of that contracting process. We have a goal that we set every year, and I, I'm happy to say that the, this last year, 2021, it's probably the, the first time we've exceeded that goal in a long time in the history of MDAT. Mm-hmm. And that's because of a lot of work by a lot of people in, in MDAT to mm-hmm. make sure that we've been inclusive. And I will also give the, the, the construction industry some credit as well. They've worked with us to try and make sure that we, 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 we understand that uh, being inclusive is a good thing. Having a, a, a diverse workforce and diverse uh, 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 contracts out there, businesses working together helps uh, everybody. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we do have uh, John Kramer of OHM Advisors with us now. John, welcome to the program. Yeah, can you hear me again? I sure can. Uh, thanks for joining us. So I, I want to have you talk about how OHM is approaching projects and specifically with uh, projects in the East Warren and Cadu area of Detroit. Uh, how are you making sure to center residents in the development of that area? So first, tell us what's going on with development there, and then tell us how you're trying to include the people who live in that area in the decisions and, uh, and in the process. Excellent. Uh, well, we're very excited to be working uh, with the city of Detroit in the East Warren, Cadju neighborhood. 
on what they call a, a framework plan. And one of the things that we've learned, uh, you know, th through time is that it, it's so important to put the people and the people of the neighborhoods first. Uh, I heard a little bit as, as I was joining, uh, you know, some of the mistakes of the past that were made. Uh, and, and the way that we know to kind of fix those and write those is to really get engaged uh, with strategic, strategic partnerships uh, from uh, the neighborhood. So in this case, uh, I think that, uh, we drew from there were some philanthropic contributions and public funding uh, from Detroit uh, Strategic Neighborhood Fund. And this was designed to continue the city's renaissance uh, through focused neighborhood uh, redevelopment. And that initiative kind of aimed to drive economic vitality, enhance the quality of life uh, in targeted neighborhoods uh, through efforts uh, that are centered on the rehabilitation and restoration of vacant housing uh, and the introduction of mixed-use development at opportunity sites and, and a pretty big focus on parks and public spaces. But the East Warren Cadu area uh, which encompasses the neighborhoods of Morningside and East English uh, Village and Cornerstone Village, it really offers an extensive opportunity for revitalization due to uh, its strong community leadership, uh, as well as the <coughs> commercial district along East Warren uh, and existing assets such as the, the Alger Theater and, and Baldock Park. And the city, uh, we partnered with the city to help lead the development of a neighborhood framework plan that really outline near-term capital improvement projects as well as financing uh, strategies and policies to bring plan recommendations uh, forward. Yeah. Um, and what's the reaction, John, that you're getting from residents in the area? We were talking with Paul Ajiba uh, about the skepticism that lots of people have because of the history of development and infrastructure not just in this city, but all over the country, and the ways in which it has overlooked people who live in, in neighborhoods, and especially black and brown people who've often felt like they were on the outside. So you're on the front lines of that conversation right now. Tell us what the feedback looks like. For, for sure, and, and, and you're right on. Although on, on one hand, uh, people are excited uh, to be heard, uh, which is very important. Uh, and they uh, appreciate that their feedback is, is, uh, is being listened to. But there's also that issue of, of trust that, that goes way back, as you mentioned. So there's a little bit of, you know, they're going to want to see what really happens at the end of the day. And uh, are, are we really going to take their, their feedback into account? And that's just something that, that uh, the design industry uh, and, and cities across the country are going to have to prove. Uh, that, that they're able to do that, and that certainly is the intent. Uh, so, John, before we have to break again, I'm, I'm really glad you've been able to join us. I wonder if you can talk just a little about what other design firms and developers ought to be keeping in mind, just maybe a, a short list of things about how to front the things that you guys are fronting in this in this process, and how to build that trust that that people don't have in in the process right now in in our city. I wonder essentially if you can come up with a tip list for for uh, your your fellow designers and developers. Sure, I, I I'll try to do that. You know, <laughs> we we consider ourselves uh, the community advancement firm, and, and our goal is to put people first. And, and that is just 
super critical. Uh, when you put people first, you know, that's a, that's a central component of what we're talking about today and why it's not only critically important to listen and understand the needs of the communities we serve, but also to value the differences in both perspective and, and voice, because every infrastructure decision that is made has the potential to have an overlooked community impact, just like we were talking about earlier uh, with Director Ajiba. Uh, when you look at what was done back in the 50s and 60s, oftentimes it was about efficiency and, and moving cars or traffic from point A to B. We're smarter than that now, and we know that you really need to look at that full impact. Where do people want to eat? Do they want to walk to work, bike to work? Where do they socialize? Where do they get their hair cut? All of these types of things uh, we know to take that into account. And you can get a lot of crucial information from residents and stakeholders, businesses and community leaders in advance of starting a project. So it, it's really in that upfront planning uh, that, that's critical. Mm. Okay. When we come back, we are going to continue this conversation about infrastructure and equity. Uh, I want to thank John Kramer of OHM Advisors for joining us. It was really great to have his voice in this conversation. We're going to keep Paul Ajiba, who's director of the Michigan Department of Transportation. And we want to get to your calls next in your social media comments. Call and tell us how you think infrastructure projects can bring about equity in communities. Do you want better roads, public transportation, parks, or more walking or bike paths? How should those things take shape in your communities? And how much do you think you should be part of the process of discussing those things? I want to hear from you here in the city of Detroit, as well as all over Metro Detroit, uh, as these are the kind of projects that unfold all over our community. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to social media and put comments there. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest is Paul Adjiba. He's director of the Michigan Department of Transportation. And we're talking about the ways in which Michigan is attempting to address inequality uh, through its approach to infrastructure. Think of all the big projects that, uh, that unfold around our city and all around our state, and the ways in which they affect neighborhoods, for instance. Uh, very often in the past, uh, people were not part of that process. People were, uh, were, were, uh, they were the, the, the object or maybe even the victims of the ideas that uh, public officials had about those kinds of things. Uh, there's a different approach today, and uh, I want to know from you how you think that should look in your community. What are the things that you wish the Michigan Department of Transportation or developers or other people who are changing communities ought to hear from you? How do you think they ought to interact with you about what's going on in your neighborhood? As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 
1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page for comments there uh, or to uh, Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation. I want to read a couple of social media comments. Um, uh, Big Neo says, the biggest problem is access to jobs without widespread mass transit. Citizens are forced to stay within a certain radius if they don't have a car. Light rail on the old light rail on the old rail lines should become a reality to help citizens get around. Uh, uh, Paul, I, I want to pause there and give you a chance to react to that. Public transit is a, a nightmare here in Southeast Michigan. It has been my entire life. That's now more than fifty years. What ways can MDOT and the other parts of state government start to deal with the inequalities that are driven by really poor mass transit? I I, I agree, Stephen. I think that's one of the, the key areas that, that we need to focus on and try to, to improve. Um, I, I would tell you, finding a way to maybe get the RTA funding back on the ballot will be a good first uh, step. Um, I remember a few years ago, I don't know if you remember the story of the walking man, the guy that gets up at 5 a.m. and sure. walks so many just to get to to the first bus to get to work. Um, I think us as a whole region, we missed an opportunity to really address the issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, when that, that, that story came out, somebody bought, bought him a car, and the story went away. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was, to me, taking the easy way out. Yeah, perhaps so many more like him out there in our community that doesn't have access to transportation to get to jobs. So instead of focusing on how do we create that opportunity, we, we, we solved that problem and everybody just kind of went back to their corners. So creating a, a good trans- transportation system, to me, it has to be inclusive. Uh, people think only poor people use uh, 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 public transit, and that's really not the case. If you make it accessible, believe me, the young generation, don't want, they don't want to drive. They would probably rather get in, in, a, in, in a bus and go downtown or go wherever they want to go to work. I, I tell people, when I go to D.C. for meetings, I don't, I don't get on Uber. Right? I just go across the street, get on that metro, Take me into into downtown DC, but within that 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 period, while I'm I'm riding that metro, I can check my emails, return phone calls, and do a lot of other things. To me, not that I couldn't do that in the Uber, but I, I just wanted to experience how it feels to have a good transit system. Hmm. Yeah, I mean it's it's been elusive, as I said, for my entire. My entire life here in uh, in Michigan. Um, Michael on Twitter says, "It sounds great to work with the people in the community, but how is this accomplished? What method is used to get input from people in the neighborhoods? What process is used to confirm neighborhood input is taken into account?" I think that's a really important question, Paul, because uh, often, even when you do everything that you might think of to try to include. Uh, people in in the, the the conversation about what's happening to them, um, there's still there's still some dissatisfaction. So, what do you do to make sure that hey, we really did make every effort we could to get uh, input here, and we came up with a decision that is just, even if everybody is not necessarily uh, happy with it. 
That that is, that is true. Uh, in most cases, we're not going to satisfy everybody, but at least as long as people walk out out of that process and knowing that we did consider their opinion, I think most times it goes a long way. I'll give you a good example. The we did a gateway project when I was in Metro, the I-75 going into Ambassador Bridge into Canada uh, years ago. That's another uh, uh, freeway that, that separated the Mexican uh, town uh, years ago. Um, when we were looking at rebuilding that, that whole project, it was about a 200-and-something million dollar project, we had an extensive uh, public engagement. Uh, one of the, the recommendations that came out of that public engagement was to put uh, you know, that big pedestrian, uh, cable bridge, pedestrian uh, bridge on Bagley that connects Mexican town to Detroit. That, that's another one of those uh, great suggestions that came out of those, those public meetings. A lot of the things we're doing on I-94 right now, it's about a $2 billion investment. We've been having public meetings. I can't even tell you how many we've had up to date. I, I used, when I was in Metro, I used to attend those. So we, we get an input. There, there's some great suggestions out there, and there might be some that we we just could not uh, accommodate because of environmental reasons or, or or whatever the regulation is. But at least people feel better knowing that they were heard, and we do give them feedback as to why we cannot incorporate their ideas into the final product. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, uh, Paul Adjaba, it's always really great to have this conversation with you. Uh, before before I let you go, I, I've only got about a minute and a half left, but I do want to give you a chance to talk about this I-375 issue, uh, the, the idea to essentially pave that over and bring back a neighborhood to that space. Where are we with all of that, and is that really going to happen? Yes, it goes back to the trust issue. People... They engage in the process, but you have to continue to build that trust until the project is completed. Yes, that project is going to happen. We are going all the way from Atwater, which is obviously, you know, Atwater's by the river. Mm -hmm. And we're going to take out that Jefferson Avenue bridge. We're going to take out uh, 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 Mac and a whole lot of those bridges along that way and make it a, a boulevard all the way to I-75. Uh, they, we are in the environmental review and approval process right now. The document has been submitted to the uh, Federal Highway Administration. We're hoping by the end of this month or next month we'll get an approval uh, from from the feds. After that, then we'll get into the full design process. I think that this city has done a great job engaging us and the community and, quite frankly, helping us be the intermediary. I think that the mayor's... Uh, you know, again, it, it starts with leadership. The, the governor and the mayor is very interested in this project, and we're doing everything we can to uh, to, to launch the project. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, we, we look forward to seeing how that all unfolds. Again, Paul Adjaba, thanks very much for being with us on Detroit Today. Thank you, Stephen H. Thanks for having me. Mm-hmm. Have a good day. You too. That's going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when we're going to talk about how suburban school districts are dealing with the latest iteration of the COVID pandemic. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.